Simon & Schuster Audio presents Star Trek New Frontier by Peter David. And then, suddenly, something thrust up from within. It was a claw. A single, giant, flaming claw, miles wide. Then the planet broke apart in a stunning display of manner and energy. Fallon erupted from the inside out. And there was a creature unlike anything that Calhoun had ever seen. It seemed vaguely avian in appearance, with feathers made of roaring flame and energy crackling around it. Oh, my God! It can't be! Don't you get it? It's... It's... The Great Bird of the Galaxy! Space. The Final Frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Give Me That Star Trek. It's ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 14 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today I'm joined by the irredeemable Shag, who, yeah, theoretically features in the intro of every episode, much to your chagrin, perhaps. (laughs) Here to talk about Star Trek New Frontier. How are you, Shag? I'm doing wonderful. I'm so excited to be here. You know, I've I've had to sit through, what, 13 episodes now, never having the opportunity to be on myself. I get to hear that those dulcet tones do the opening of your show, and then I have to listen to, like, squeaky David Ace Gutierrez and stuff? I mean, it just just kills me inside. Yeah, twice. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Thankfully, you had that, like, Corey Drew, you know, palate cleansing episode, which was phenomenal. So, But I am thrilled to be here, buddy, to talk about Star Trek, because I love me some Trek. And this is some special Trek. What is Star Trek New Frontier? You've heard of Next Generation. You've heard of Deep Space Nine. You've heard of Voyager. You've now heard of Discovery. But what is Star Trek New Frontier? Well, before we get into that, this is technically Shag's first episode. So he's got to take the Trek test. Oh, the infamous quiz. All right. Yes, Shag. We begin, as we always do, with the same question. We've got to test your cred by asking, what does Star Trek mean to you? <sighs> well, I've had 13 episodes to think about this. So I'm, I am a little prepared, I think. So I thought long and hard. It means lots of different stuff, really. But for me, I guess it's about the spirit of exploration and curiosity. You know, like, if you think about, like, if you ever go hiking and you're out, you know, and you're climbing or whatever, and you, you just want to know what's over the next hill. You're like ready to stop, but you're like, well, just, I just need to know what's over that hill, and then and then the next hill or around the corner. It's just it's like you're never enough. You always want to know a little bit more. Now I realize I'm talking to 
trek fan, so maybe hiking's not your thing. I get it, guys. <laughs> Exercise. Woof. Uh, so how about this? How about you? You want to know what's around the next corner in that video game? You want to know what the full map looks like? You got to explore every single room in that dungeon or whatever it is. So maybe that's a comparison for you. But either way, you know, the need to know more, you know, that the curiosity. I can't promise that's a uniquely human trait because I don't know what alien species are really like, but it does seem to me that it's sort of like at the core of uh, the human adventure. Mm-hmm. And you'd say that this is something that drives you in life? Absolutely. Absolutely. And did you get it from Star Trek? Was that contagious? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, Star Trek came into my life when I was about seven years old, so I don't know that I really remember before that, but boy, I sure liked exploring before that even. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that has many meanings. The other questions are basically, what are your favorites? So what's your favorite iteration of the show? Mine is not actually one of the shows. It's an era. It's the movie era featuring the original cast. So we're talking classic films, one through six. Those are my absolute favorite, you know. Uh, those are my mac and cheese of Star Trek, if you will. Now, like most people, my favorites are two, three, four, and six. Those are obviously, you know, everyone kind of says the best. And, and Star Trek's, uh four is probably one of my all-time favorite movies of all time. It's like the best feel-good movie ever. It's wonderful. I love it. Now, I'm going to I'm gonna take a second to sort of, since I have to establish my cred here, right, I'm going to talk a little more beyond that. So mm-hmm. for me, my personal golden age of Star Trek is like 1979, you know, with the, with the motion picture through probably about 1998, really, is where I, I didn't stop being a Trek fan, but that's where I, I stopped being a manic Trek fan, you know? Uh, for me, I love the books. I've read over 50 of the Star Trek novels, which, when I actually counted them up, it seemed like a pretty small number, but I feel like I've read a zillion of them, you know? Uh, and many of the ones I've read take place during that movie era. And now, if you were to pigeonhole me to actually pick a series, because that was originally the question, if I had to pick a TV series, I would probably say Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, I used to VCR record, for those of you at home, VCR was a pre-DVR. Anyway, I used to VCR record every episode, every week, and I watched it three times a week. I'd watch it when I went out. I'd watch it with my buddy Bob, and I'd watch it with my brother. And I used to memorize like everything I wanted to know. The tech, the planets, the supporting characters, the aliens, the episode titles, everything about it. I was totally into it. I even, um, did you ever buy any of the trading card stuff that they used to do for Star Trek? Not the new stuff, like oh, the old days? Uh, not the trading cards. I had the, I mean, the collectible card game. Oh, okay. Sure. That's part of that, too. Well, I bought the trading card series in 91, which was before the card game. And uh, it was like the 25th anniversary edition from Impel. And let me tell you, the, it had it featured classic and STNG cards. That was my Bible. Like every each card had like the the title, the had a photo and information. So like I actually used that as my guide to understand the the series. Then yes, the the collectible card game from Decipher. Mm-hmm. I played the crap out of that thing. Yeah, that's where Siskoid was born. Uh, that's right. That's On right. those boards, yeah. You know, a lot of people collected it, not a, a lot of people played it. Dude, I played it all the freaking time. I love that game. Like we quit playing Magic. To play Star Trek, we just loved it that much. I read lots of the uh, the comics from DC and Malibu, you know, and then uh, the Mar- Marvel's Paramount comics. Those are great. You could do an episode just on the Marvel Paramount comics. There's some good stuff there. Uh, and somewhere around Voyagers, I don't know, second, third, fourth season, somewhere there. I kind of like started to not care as much anymore. Sorry, Voyager fans. Uh, I kind of <laughs> kept up. You know, I knew what was going on. I saw the movies, of course, and stuff like that. And I did enjoy quite a bit of Enterprise, that series, which you didn't even mention earlier, by That's the way. Right. Way to go. Um, and New Trek, of course, has been fun. The movies and stuff. I especially love Star Trek Beyond. I can watch that thing again and again. I, I love that movie. It's so much fun. And, uh, and for, for the most part, my passion still really lies with the novels, which is sort of convenient for this episode. And in fact, I just finished rereading the first eight books of the New Frontier storyline um, for this podcast in preparation. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. And if I can, if I'm allowed to plug somebody else, there is a great podcast I discovered recently called Literary Treks. Uh, it's on tr- the Trek FM 
uh, podcast network. If you're a fan of Star Trek novels, you got to be listening to this podcast. That's what it's all about. It's all about Star Trek books. It's so much fun every episode. The guys are really cool, and uh, I'm really enjoying it. So we'll be taking a page from them today, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, who's your favorite character in all of Trek? I wish I had an original answer for you, but I don't. It's Kirk. Uh, specifically the movie Eric Kirk. You know, when he, he's still the big hero, he's still saving the day, he's still getting the girls sometimes. Um, <laughs> but he's getting older, you know? He's desperately wanting to hold on to his youth and he still wants to be vital. He's still cocky. But he's starting to see the mistakes he's made in life, you know? He's starting to regret some of his choices. And, um, well, it's probably a lot more applicable to me now in my mid-40s. Uh, I was still fascinated by this concept even when I was a teenager. I just really liked it. Now, uh, if I can lay on your couch here for a minute and play pop psychologist, I'll share a little info for you. I'll, I'll probably go a little deeper than I really should. Uh, in some respects, the movie Eric Kirk actually reminds me of my dad. Um, my father was a real renaissance man. I mean, he was crazy. In his youth, he, he did a number of things. He studied to be a, a priest. Then he discovered girls. Uh, he was the lead singer and the guitarist in a rock and roll band. He traveled around the country. He was a professional stage magician and owned a store that sold magic tricks. He directed local theater plays. He worked as Ronald McDonald in parades and in doing like appearances in the restaurants. He did all this, so at the same time holding down a professional job in radio stations and TV stations. And commanded a, a starship, presumably. <laughs> right. <laughs> and he had four kids. And all this is before he's 35 years old. And I look back at my life and I'm like, oh, crap, I've done nothing. Anyway, the real wild youth. And then he gets to middle age, right? And my dad looks back and he's starting to question a lot of the choices he made. The stuff he missed out on. A lot of it, honestly, was time with his kids. You add to the fact that a lot of people have said over the years, including myself, my siblings, friends, whatever my dad looked a lot like Shatner during that movie era you know if you sprinkle like a Shatner with a little bit of Lee Majors from like the Fall Guy era Mm -hmm. that's what my dad looked like you know so I guess a bit of maybe my love of Shatner is love of my dad and the struggle he went through I don't know it's a little I said armchair psychology for you there all right well what's your favorite alien species then once again I'm gonna be a little bit boring but I think for the right reasons okay uh I want to come up with something creative I want to say like you know Mott the Barber's race or the insect race from the big goodbye or something like that that would be cool right but that's not really it the Harada right wow well done the uh the alien race I was most interested in honestly was the Klingons and specifically during the STNG era you know I mean, SDNG did amazing things with developing. I don't need to tell you this, but I mean, with the culture and the politics and the heritage, I mean, think back to some of those episodes. I mean, whatever your image of Klingons is right now, remove that for a second. Remember what it was like back in like 94, 95, whatever. Uh, you know, Matter of Honor from season two where Riker is stationed on or assigned to that Klingon ship, you know, mm-hmm. or Sins of the Father in season three where worst families dishonored or Redemptions part one and two, season four cliffhanger, season five opener, you know, the Klingon Civil War. I mean, all that was totally kick-ass. And then... You get everyone always talks about Star Trek: The Undiscovered Country as being a great Klingon movie. That came after all the world building in STNG. That wasn't until after all those episodes I just mentioned. You know, it was. I love that race. They're, they're fascinating as warriors and honor and all that. And honestly, these are the stories why Klingons became wildly popular. And conversely, these amazing stories are also what led to a lot of embarrassing fan activities about Klingons. You know, sometimes the Klingons get kind of a bad rap. Like a lot of people, it leaves a bad taste in their mouth. And some of it's because of the fans, unfortunately. And even for me, I'm a little bit over the Klingons nowadays because of some of the crap I've seen over the years. But again, going back to that, STNG era of Klingons. It was awesome. Well, I think your cred is pretty safe, except for the bit where you can, you know, spot you know, the word bullion or whatever. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> damn it. But let's talk about New Frontier. That's what we're here for today. Woo-hoo. 
Now, for those who don't know, Star Trek New Frontier is a series of books by fan-favorite writer Peter David, best known around these parts for seminal comic book runs on Aquaman, but also Supergirl, Incredible Hulk, lots more. And New Frontier follows the adventures of the crew of the USS Excalibur in an unexplored sector home to the fallen Thalonian Empire. The crew is a mix of several next-gen alumni and new characters or characters from other books. I will get to them in a second. The first story, serialized in four short novels, came out in 1997 when we were children. Uh, I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Neither was I. And since then, uh, there have been some 16 more novels, a few comics, uh, crossovers with other book lines, some short stories, uh, part of anthologies. The final installment was an ebook in 2015. So, pretty popular, right? Yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah, very successful. Now, going into some of the real world aspects of that, it was, mm -hmm. well, Peter David wrote all these. The idea came from John J. Ordover. He was the editor. Right. He came to Peter David and said, I have this idea for a, a series that wasn't connected to any of the main series. And then him and David developed it from there and went from there. They sort of floated the idea that what if we did a spinoff that wasn't connected to a TV series and the, the success of New Frontier actually led to many more of those series. Oh yeah. The uh, you know the Corps of Engineers and the there's a the Klingon crew one the Titan and uh, whatever that one on a space station is. Vanguard and Seekers is probably right. the biggest one that I hear of, you know. And then there's you know, the the IKS Gorkin and then there was even a New Earth series they tried to spin one off in there called The Challenger. They they've done tons of these and I don't think any of them would have happened if it hadn't been for the success of New Frontier. Right, because they basically use that same formula, a mix of what we already know, like you know characters, popular guest stars from other from the actual series mixed in with new characters and then sort of they can evolve uh, and do almost anything because they're in their own little separate continuity and yet still cross over with the other book lines that are sort of kind of more stuck because the the bigger characters are sometimes characters that were still involved in series on tv uh, or in movies so uh yep. but new frontier was the, the first and uh Arguably the best. Well, I'm certainly going to say so. And you talk about how they brought in uh, the existing characters. I mean, they really did a good job with the launch, too. And that was part of what the magic was in 1997. First of all, Star Trek was still a hot property at that point. So it was, you still were doing pretty well. Uh, it's it certainly waxed and waned a lot since then. But at that point, it was on its high. The first series of books, which was the four books, as you mentioned, they, they put Jean-Luc Picard in there. You know, they, they yep. firmly established this main character we're going to talk about in a bit named Mackenzie Calhoun. They established that his history was steeped in, you know, Picard being the one who, can, you know, gets him to move along. Also, they put Spock in there, you know, as an ambassador. So he was in that first run of books as well. So they really tried to give it a great launching point. And it started in July 1997. I was, I, I remember I bought them off the shelves because it was the first two books, these skinny little books. And then the next few books came out the next month. And, you know, this, this is something that I've come to, I'm getting a little bit in the minutiae here, but I find this stuff interesting. As I understand it, it wasn't supposed to be two little books and then two little books. It was supposed to be one big book and one big book originally. It, the editors chose to break it up. I don't know wh whether they thought they could charge more or just get people to taste it. I don't know. But, um, if you read them again, you can kind of see it because the breaking point between the first and second book, and then the second and third book, the, I mean, sorry, the, the third and fourth book, it, the, the cliffhanger is really manufactured and weak. It's like, this doesn't seem like the way the book should end. So it sort of makes sense knowing that. And the only reason I really bring it up is because later on, they come out in that two-book pattern. Like five and six came out together, and seven and eight came out together, and then nine through 11 actually form a trilogy. And, um, and eventually it became popular enough they started doing hardcovers, which Star Trek you know, had had a history of doing, but I, they did, I don't think they expected a series like this to become that popular. Although Peter David had been given a number of you know, high-profile novels for Next Gen or other lines in the past, so he was... 
you know, he was a bankable writer for them. True. You know, books like Imzadi and Q Squared and all that. There weren't the numbered books. There were like the, the heftier uh, books. and Giant-sized. Yeah, and know. usually he would bring to the table, you know, you like your run-of-the-mill Star Trek novel would be just you know, equivalent to an episode of the show. Longer, of course, but an episode of the show. Whenever Peter David wrote one, you know, he always used a lot of continuity. He'd bring in Luxana Troy and Q and uh, and then like link it back to Trelane and then Vendetta with the Borg and the Flying Cigar. So you... <laughs> Bugle. <laughs> and so, yeah, and so he usually used like the, the, the whole scope and breadth of the Star Trek universe, probably... Because of his comic book roots, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, you've got a universe and you play with the whole thing, and they let him do it. So uh, I think he was a, a good writer to to pick to do this and to create a whole sector as well. So uh, you know, a playground for himself that he could explore. Which I think that was the editor's idea, but that the Thalonian Empire having fallen in that sector and all the, the planets sort of liberated uh, all of a sudden and power plays, which sort of was the you know, post USSR, you know, East Europe kind of feel oh, to yeah. it. Definitely influence from there. Yeah. So just to give a little more of that, I mean, think about too, like USSR closed off or even China being closed off for a number of years before they let foreigners in there. Mm-hmm. That's the idea there. The Federation had to stay out of what they called sector 221G. And I got to assume that's a bit of a play, by the way, in Sherlock Holmes, 221B. But anyway, 221G uh, it was being controlled by the Thelonians. Then they decide that they're going to go, you know, it's in total chaos. The Federation wants to go in and help. So they decide to send one ship and they decide they need kind of a cowboy captain. They don't need a Jean-Luc Picard. They need someone who's more like a Captain Kirk. That's where this character, Mackenzie Calhoun, comes in. All right. Let's talk about the characters then. You know, who are we talking about here? And really, that's that's what makes these books live and breathe is the characters. Mackenzie Calhoun, talk us through it. Go ahead. Try and pronounce his real name. Um... Um, well, it's, it, it doesn't have any vowels. So it's Mackenzie without any vowels. And, and a bunch uh, of apostrophes. Yeah. I'll tell you how they did it, at least as I recall in the audiobook. Okay. It could be wrong. But as I seem to recall in the audiobook, it was Mahakahenzi. It was kind of crazy. Hmm. But uh, that's what's always kind of stuck in my head over the years. Anyway, what happened, he's actually from a small village called Calhoun. And he's Mahakahenzi from Calhoun. So when he joins Starfleet, they just make it Mackenzie Calhoun. Makes it easier. He is the captain of the Excalibur. He is the main character of the story. It is definitely an ensemble series of books. But he's your main character. And, and the gist of him is, I mean, he looks like a human guy, right? Except he's got these piercing purple eyes and this deep, deep vertical scar down one side of his face. And uh, he's from this home world. It's called Xenex. And it was a fairly primitive society, but they were being subjugated by this other race. And at the age of 19, Mackenzie led a violent revolution, which overthrew their oppressors. I mean, he was essentially a benevolent warlord, you know. And uh, after the liberation, Starfleet comes to visit, and Mackenzie meets Jean-Luc Picard. And Picard saw something in Mackenzie and convinced him to actually try out for Starfleet. And Starfleet wasn't exactly a comfortable fit for Mackenzie, because, uh, you know, he's pretty savage, but he's insanely smart and very tactical. And in the end, he ends up impressing Admiral Jellicoe, who we'll talk about more and you may remember, and was ended up appointed to be the captain of the Excalibur for this very unique mission. And he's, he's very much a rogue. He's, he's cut of that cloth of, again, of Kirk, sort of like, he does what he thinks is right, 
uh, regardless of what the rules are. To hell with them, you know? Cowboy diplomacy. And he, again, very accomplished tactician, very strong warrior. He's got a lot of strong emotions, uh, more in like the anger range than the compassion range, I would say. Uh, he always manages to overcome the obstacles. And he's not exactly a nice guy. He's not somebody I think I'd want to hang out with. But as the reader, with Peter David's, you know, command of the English language, you can't help but like the guy. You just really like him. And uh, I was, I was goofing around on YouTube today and I saw, I came across some fan casting for new, I promise this is the only fan casting I'm going to mention, but okay. they, I saw some fan casting for Mackenzie and someone suggested Joe Flanagan from Stargate Atlantis. Uh, and that's actually not bad. I mean, he actually looks a lot like that. If Flanagan sort of beefed up a little bit, a little more muscular and played it tough rather than, you know, funny, he actually would do a pretty good job. And unless I'm mistaken, he is the only character who never appeared in you know any of the movies or TV shows? The only fictional you know novel-based character to ever receive his own action figure, which is proudly sitting on my shelf, by the way. Oh well, see, so yeah. he he made it big, but he is sort of more of a almost more of a sword and sorcery kind of hero, yeah. you know, sword wielding sword and sandal, sword and sandal. Yeah, okay, but uh, yeah, he was sort of that guy, and he had those that special ability to sense danger. I think oh, many yeah. of Peter David's characters have sort of a at least a superpower or a kind of a superpower. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> looking back, you know, I I didn't go back and reread everything as much as you did. Uh, you know, just flip through. Thanks for your dedication. No problem. You know, I I read the first. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, the first 12 books or 14 books originally. So, yeah, no, I, I like the line where uh, he sort of describes himself as uh, an officer, but not a gentleman. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. That's, okay. That sort of encapsulates it. All right, so that's Calhoun. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he's he's the big hero. He, um, in, in many ways, it is his story in the same yeah. way that it's often Kirk's or Picard's story. But he's got a full crew complement, and some of them we already knew. We don't need to fan cast, right? <laughs> we don't so uh what about his first officer commander elizabeth shelby very good now from star trek the next generation you mm -hmm. may recall uh she was in the best of both worlds and it was played by elizabeth dennehy and she played that really really uptight first officer that was pushing Riker constantly hey, you remember her like everyone was like she was so biting and mean but you know what she was right a lot and uh anyway so she's she is yes the first officer she's a uh, human she's a woman and she's still hard as in, in in the new frontier story she's still hard as nails and by the rules and it turns out that you find out that her and mckenzie were actually romantically involved a long time ago in their youth now she's his first officer and much like she felt towards Riker, she is resentful that she didn't get the command herself that she's first officer so when the series begins you know there's these struggles between them about trying to figure out how to work together because she's by the rules and he's totally a rogue right but by the end they sort of work out a nice working arrangement and she really is one of the key characters throughout the entire series i don't really want to what we're going to do by the way is as we describe this we're going to sort of talk about them in the context of kind of where they set the stage in the first that those first four little books that really form one big story because uh, we don't want to spoil a lot of what comes later but she she develops quite a bit over time, and uh, and that's a relationship that might you know pick up steam again. The old feelings might come back. So the tension that she brought to the screen is is repurposed in many ways during the book series. And it's also I, I found it's weird, but because she wasn't the only one, uh, we'll talk about other characters. But this is also the setup in the Star Trek spoof, the Orville. Mm, that's true. Yeah. And that's not the only link. You know, we're, I've only seen like the first couple episodes of that. Uh, I'm not quite convinced by it yet. But, um, but you know, there are a number of elements that kind of, I don't know, were taken from New Frontier. They're, I mean, it's not like 
this is difficult to imagine as a trope. <laughs> but, True. Uh, but they did sell a lot of copies of these books, and clearly Seth MacFarlane's a Star Trek fan, so... So, Seth MacFarlane, New Frontier, maybe. So, uh, okay, so that's Shelby. We know her. We also know Dr. Salar, the uh, medical officer. That's right. Chief Medical Officer Vulcan. She was in Next Generation as well in the episode The Schizoid Man. There she was a lieutenant and the medical officer under Dr. Pulaski. <laughs> Lucky girl. Uh, <laughs> played by Star Trek luminary Susie Plexen. And so uh, in, in the New Frontier setting, she is you know very much the cold, logical Vulcan. She's the doctor. But as all the characters have their own weird quirks, because it's a ship full of misfits, just like any other Star Trek series, uh, she's going through a very difficult time in her life. It turns out her Vulcan husband, actually a few years prior, had actually suffered a fatal heart attack while they were, forgive me, consummating their marriages, their Ponfar, you know? Uh, and so because he died during Ponfar, while they were in the middle of that, she's never actually completed the act. Therefore, she's in a constant state of Ponfar, though she's been suppressing it. Uh, and she didn't really know it at first. So anyway, due to this uncontrollable desire, she ends up becoming begrudgingly involved with another character from the series. A character we'll talk about in just a second, Chief Engineer Burgoyne 172. Right. And then another fan favorite, Ashley Judd herself, uh, Robin Leffler is in this. Yes. That's right. She was, if you remember, she was in two episodes, Darmok and The Game. And Ashley Judge played Wesley's girlfriend, poor girl. And uh, she's she was uh, basically, you know what? It's Ashley Judd. I don't really need to remind you who she is, folks. You remember it. Quit kidding yourself. Anyway, one of her fun things was she was uh, always very optimistic. She had Leffler's Laws, which were sort of rules for herself. They carried that through into the books. And she has some ongoing subplots, which involve her mother, a very mysterious lady, and also working alongside the Thelonian ambassador, Saquon, which we'll talk about later more later too but she is a real joy through all these books and it's again it's ashley judd oh my heart's a pitter patter yeah and we get to learn more of you know more leffler's laws and that little mm -hmm. stick uh her relationship with kwan she's also got a mother with strange powers who faked her own anyway there's a big subplot with that as well so yep. she gets a lot to do and i think she's one of the better you know well-remembered TNG guest stars, so it makes sense to include her here. You want to talk about about um, Admiral Jellico? Well, Ad Admiral now we could, you know, the former Captain Jellico, who also appears in the series. He was uh, he was in the Chain of Command part one and two. He was the guy who took command of the Enterprise when Picard was gone, and he was the guy you were supposed to hate. Although if you stood back and really looked at what he was doing on the Enterprise, he wasn't really doing anything that bad. <laughs> he was running it like a military operation should be run, <laughs> but that's not what we're used to. So anyway, uh, he was played by the brilliant Ronnie. He did a phenomenal job in the role. Whether you loved him or hated him, it all came down to the acting. He was great. Anyway, Admiral Jellicle is a supporting character in the series. He's not on the ship. You know, he's back at Starfleet HQ. And he's in charge of their mission, and they constantly have to report to him, and they constantly argue with him. It's fun to have him. He makes a great foil for our heroes. Yeah, you will always be remembered as the guy who finally put uh, Deanna Troy in a, a uniform. Thank goodness. I think Marina Sirtis was probably pretty thankful for that. Yeah, I think it looked better, actually. And eventually adopted it for the last season of Next Gen. Then there are three characters that seemed original to me when I first read it, but I later uh, found out by reading more stuff that they were characters that initially appeared in the Starfleet Academy books. Still created by Peter David, though. Still, yep. And so he, you know, they made them get a bit older, and uh, they joined the crew of the Excalibur. And these are Lieutenant Salida, uh, Lieutenant Zach Kebron, and Lieutenant Mark McHenry. So let, let's go through these. Who is uh, Salida? Well, we'll kind of pick up the pace a bit here. Salida is a Vulcan, uh, another female. She's a brilliant science officer on, on the Excalibur. And she, but she's a Vulcan with a bit of an attitude. 
So she's got some snarkiness to her. And early on in the series, I don't really want to spoil it, but we, we do discover there is more to her heritage than she's telling. So she's got some secrets that come out over time. Yeah, it's a bit grim. Then we get into Lieutenant Zach Kebron. He is uh, a male, and he is of this race called the Brickar. And basically, sort of imagine like the thing from Fantastic Four, or maybe Block from the Legion of Superheroes. It's kind of what this guy is. He's massive, and he's made of rocks. He's a security chief, as he should be, as you would imagine. Uh, anyway, massive guy, thick hide, very long lifespan, very gruff, doesn't have a lot of patience, you know, just a, a walking tank. So that's the, his function in there. It's very much a superpowered kind of character. Oh, yeah. And as the series goes along, um, he actually does sort of evolve and change emotionally, and that's part of his story there, which is kind of fun. He molts. <laughs> I'm thinking about more personality-wise. He starts going through puberty. <laughs> right. Well, the molting, actually, you know, it, it makes it made me think of, not Block, but his ancestor Strata. Strata, yeah. And then there is Mark McHenry, who also has a strange secret. Yes. He's the helmsman, the astrogation guy. Very unusual Starfleet officer. And in fact, he often looks like he's daydreaming or asleep at his post. Though it's been tested in several of the books, and they talk about it, how uh, many times they've proven that he's completely aware of what's happening to the ship, even without his instruments. He knows what's going on. And he also has this, like, uh, along the same lines, he has the uncanny ability to find his position in space, meaning where the ship is, without the aid of any navigational instruments. In fact, I just read one book where he navigated from one side of the galaxy to the other without any instruments. He just knew how to do it. So there's there's secrets there, and that comes out over time as well, because, of course, it's a ship full of misfits, and as we said earlier, it's almost like everybody has a superpower. Yeah, and in his case, I, I, we won't spoil it, because we I, I think we want you to read these books yes. uh, and discover them for yourself, but let's just say that his ancestry dates back to a original series episode, so once you make that link, it's pretty cool. I enjoyed his... I, I like Mark. He's a cool character. Burgoyne 172, so that's our chief engineer, hermaphrodite from a race called the Hermat. What can you tell us about Chief Burgoyne? Well, at first when I heard about this character, I'm like, why didn't they just use the androgynous race that they already you know, introduced in Next Gen where you know Riker tries to bone? But they really went tr- tried to go a different direction. Those people were too passive. Uh, so, so Burgoyne is, uh, first of all, she's exceptional in Chief Engineer Post. Of course she is in Star Trek. But she's quite sexually promiscuous. I mean, like, aggressively so. And also, when needed, she can take on these, like, animal-like characteristics. You know, she, she can track people. She can run. She's got clawed fingers. She's a heck of a fighter. You know, very Wolverine Berserker Rage kind of almost mode. And, uh, and surprisingly, she ends up becoming romantically involved, as we mentioned earlier, with the very stoic Dr. Solar. So you're using she and uh, her but uh, the book well, I'm doesn't saying actually she, do that which is, right i'm using s slash h e because they, they do it's funny you know this this book series is now 20 years old this year by the way and they were all into the correct personal pronouns for a hermaphroditic species all the way back then and that's still an issue we're talking about now with people's gender fluidity and so it's her whenever it's her it's h-i-r mm-hmm. and so, so you know it's it's hard to, to sound it out but uh, whether it, it's supposed to sound different but on the page you can actually tell that uh, Burgoyne has his her own syntax or grammar yep Yep. And that's why this this works well as a novel. <laughs> exactly. And then there's Ambassador Sequan or Saiquan. Is that is that how they say it in the audiobook? Uh, you know, I don't remember. I call him Saiquan. Like, I, I do, I put a pause, Saiquan, but that's what I say. I say C, but, uh, you know, it's probably my French showing up. Well, I, I pronounce everything wrong, so. <laughs> so I must be right. Uh, so Sequan is the Thalonian sort of, you know, kind of named ambassador, but he's uh, he's got a, a deeper story than that. What's he doing on the ship? For the first several books, I didn't pick up on the difference between Thelonian and Tholian. 
like the Tholian web, I kept thinking these were connected for like the first few books until I finally looked at the spelling. I'm like, oh, these are two different words. So yeah, Tholonian. He's the former prince of the Tholonian Empire. So he's used to being, you know, on a throne in a position of power, but he was sort of the nice prince amongst a family of corrupt rulers. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, um, Again, massive guy. These guys all seem to be. He's all bright red with like these black cool tattoos on him. Not not like a Sith though. Anyway, he is serving as the Excalibur's guide through Sector 221G, and uh, he's incredibly arrogant though. And even though he's he was the nice prince, he's still a prince, so he's full of himself. But he's also, uh, as I mentioned, a very accomplished fighter. And, uh, and Lieutenant Robin Leffler, the Ashley Judd character, ends up being sort of an assistant to him uh, as they go through these ambassador duties, and they begin to develop a friendship, which is interesting as the story develops. I like to have. Uh, this sort of, uh, you know, uh, someone on the ship who's not necessarily a real ally, or he might have his own agenda. And so, so you know, it puts you in mind of some of the better D Space Nine characters, uh, or those relationships, you know, a Garrick, or, you know, someone who may not be everything well, he seems. That makes him sound sinister. He's not sinister. He, he, he lands somewhere between, he's not a Dr. Smith from Lost in Space either. I'm trying to think, is he maybe a little more like Quark, where he's definitely mm-hmm. on their side? But he is more interested in his own. Now, he's interested in getting his throne back. Ultimately, is what he is. But he's so I'd say he's more like a quirk without the goofiness. You know, he's he's interested in accomplishing his own goals, but he's certainly on the side of right. But you're making it sound like Garrick isn't. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it's simply Garrick. <laughs> so there are many other characters as well that that recur in the series. Uh, my personal favorite is uh, Ensign Janos, who is uh, uh-huh. you know a Mugato from. Um, a private uh, little war in the the original series, uh, and somehow you know more evolved and intelligent. For those of you who don't remember the each episode title, and that's I'm one of those. Oh, sorry. All right, you, you know what? I'll make a big complete admission that's going to blow all of my geek cred. I have not seen every episode of the original series. Oh, that's right. I'm one of those. I've seen every episode of Next Gen three times. I've seen pretty much every episode of DS9, most episodes of Voyager, most episodes of Enterprise, every movie, things like that. But TOS, there's a lot of them I haven't seen. So anyway, Mugato is the giant white ape yeah. with the horn. So that was, that was pretty crazy. I mean, to see that that character, you know what it felt to me? It was like when I read um, Yesterday's Sun or something, one of the early uh, you know, Star Trek novels. Yep. And they had a Horta as uh, an officer aboard. Mm. So it, it was like that. It was like, oh, this this former sort of monster actually is more than what we saw. And now, dozens or hundreds of years later, that creature is a person. I love that. But there are plenty more, right? I'll name check some of the more important ones. Uh, there's Cat Mueller. She is the XO. So she's like the, the nighttime XO of Excalibur. So like when they go into night mode, she's in charge of the ship. And which is kind of cool. I, I don't remember them ever really developing a character like that in any of the series before. So it's kind of no. neat to see. She's also a former love interest of uh, Captain um, Kenzie Calhoun. So there's a some bit of tension there. There's Kalinda, who is the sister of Ambassador Saquon. So therefore, she's the former princess of the Thelonian Empire. And of course, again, because it's a Peter David book, she has some unique powers that are quite surprising as well. Uh, we get introduced to Morgan Primus who is Robin Leffler's mom. And you mentioned, uh, we both mentioned her earlier as being mysterious. There is a big mystery surrounding her. It takes a long time for that to play out, but it's well worth it. So Morgan Prime is kind of a cool character. And there's a zillion, a zillion more sort of lower decks characters. In fact, I um, I wanted to keep track of all this stuff. So I actually kept a little scrap of paper and started, every time they mentioned a character, I'd write them down. And eventually I put it into a spreadsheet and I've still got it. I used it as a bookmark. It's this two-sided thing with like a billion names, you know, Ensign Yates, Toledi, Dr. 
Maxwell. It just goes on and on and on. All these minor characters they introduced, which I thought was really cool. And uh, eventually they even introduced children of the crew. I don't know how they managed it, but it's not like a Cousin Oliver way. You know, you, you would think, oh, they introduced kids halfway through. That means, you know, <laughs> ratings are slumping. No, it's they made it interesting the way they introduced the kids. And uh, two more characters that are worth mentioning, they get introduced about halfway through the series. And oddly enough, they are from the Star Trek animated series. You know, the series from the 70s with Captain Kirk. There are two characters who get time lost from that series who end up from the 23rd century into the 24th century into this series of books. One is Erex, who uh, was that sort of peach-colored, bald alien uh, in the cartoon, the one who was always flying navigation because they didn't have, what, Chekhov, if I remember right? Isn't that right? Yeah, with extra arms. Yeah, he, exactly. He had three arms and three legs, and he was voiced by James Doohan, and so he ends up on uh, in, in the series. And also Mares, who was the cat-like alien, who was voiced by Majel Barrett. She was, uh, I guess, the communications officer on Kirk's ship, and she ends up there as a science officer. Also, she's there in the 24th century. So both of those characters, Peter David basically looked back and goes, here's two fun characters no one's doing anything with. It's technically canon. So he brought them forward and put them into his New Frontier series, which is really cool. And to loop it back to what I was saying about the Orville, now that we've heard all the, the names, you know, the Orville also has a character with mega strength. The Orville also has, well, not a hermaphrodite character, but a, a character from a race that only has one sex or one gender hmm. uh, who lays an egg in the, like the second episode and which has <laughs> seems to have uh, consequences later on even the lackadaisical helm officer is not a mark McHenry who is super proficient but i mean he seems to be super proficient even though half the time he's you know he's, he's just been drinking beer or something so <laughs> i don't know there's like a, an element of new frontier in there except uh, spoofed up but i see it and now that i've seen it i can't unsee it <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, maybe I'll enjoy the Orville just thinking maybe that this is like, this is New Frontier, maybe badly made, but it's New Frontier or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, everyone says if you stick through to the fourth episode of Orville, you'll get hooked. So that's what I hear. And they've, they've been saying this for how long? Because aren't there only four episodes? Uh, <laughs> that could be the case. Maybe five by the time you hear this. I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. And, of course, the ship is a character in a way, isn't it? As any Star Trek series is. The ship is always, you know, the ship is, uh, you treat her right, you, know, you treat her like a lady, she'll always bring you home. Or, or oh gosh, I'm, I'm messing up McCoy's quote. You're green-blooded and human. Rich to Admiral Kirk. But, uh, yes, the USS Excalibur, the code is NCC26517. And she is, oh, my favorite, the Ambassador-class starship which is the same as the Enterprise C. Right. So if you remember yesterday's Enterprise from Next Gen, when the, the, the Enterprise C comes through the rift, that's the same model ship. And if you don't remember, it was kind of a cool hybrid of the Enterprise A and the Enterprise D. It was like a really cool mock-up of, of how those two would look if they had a baby. Now, um, I, I'm going to give you... We said we've been trying to avoid spoilers. I'm going to give you some spoilers. However, it's not that surprising because if you look at the titles of the book, this, is, this, is, this tells you right away. Uh, about halfway through the series... There's a, a run of three books, all named uh, Excalibur, which does entail the conclusion of the adventures, let's just put it that way, on the Excalibur. And then it introduces the replacement ship, which is the USS Excalibur, NCC-26517-A. We've seen that old trope before, right? <laughs> Except this time, it's a galaxy-class ship. So they start off in a, a ship that looks like the Enterprise-C, and they end up on a ship that looks like Enterprise-D. And then uh, at the same time, they introduce a second ship, 
USS Trident, which is another galaxy class, and the Trident ends up sharing the mission in Sector 221G with them, and you have uh, the adventures of two ships going on at the same time. I don't think I'll say any more there as far as who's crewing that ship, because that gets into spoilers, but uh, you do have those two ships exploring the galaxy together, so those really are the crew. And for me personally... You know, again, the book's sort of coming out in 1997. From I looked back in my my hard drive here. From about 1998 to about 2000, I spent a ridiculous amount of time customizing my desktop of my computer to have rotating background images of fan-drawn images of the Enterprise C. Because you couldn't find any of the Excalibur, so I had to have Enterprise C and pretend that was the Excalibur. I had a ridiculous number of, like, people, you know, computer-drawn things people had done of Enterprise C, of any Ambassador-class ship I could find. And uh, it's pretty funny how how much I was really into this at the time. Okay, let's talk about the stories that are being told. (laughs) Skipping right past my geekiness. Okay, thanks, man. (laughs) It's there. It's on the table for people to examine. (laughs) They'll make their own conclusions. Uh, But let's talk about, you know, the stories. We've got a ship. We've got people on the ship. We even got two ships eventually. But they've got to be moving through stories or else it's pointless. Absolutely. So, again, they're out there exploring Sector 221G, formerly known as Thelonian Space. That provides the backdrop for Peter David to really to tell any kind of story he wants because they're separated from the rest of the, the universe, if you will, so they don't have to deal with the effects of the Star Trek Next Generation novels, the DS9 novels, the Voyager novels, or the TV series, or the movies, or any of that stuff. They can just sort of ignore it. The Dominion War, they don't have to worry about it unless they want to. So it gave David, you know, who was, as you said, a premier writer of them, his own little corner to play with as he would have wanted. And so the crew's out there exploring this sector. They have very little foreknowledge other than what Saquon basically shares with them or the plot dictates to us. And and I could describe all the stories. I mean, there's 25 books in this thing, right, guys? But really what it boils down to is this is simply Peter David's take on a lot of classic Star Trek tropes, really. I mean, they they battle sentient computers that are taking over our planet. They battle aggressive races invading other worlds. They deal power-mad godlike entities, you know, interfering with other cultures. None of this is new. This is all stuff you've seen in Star Trek before. But... It's all done with Peter David's unique way of storytelling. If you've never read a book by him, you've done yourself a disservice. He's a really clever writer. Whether you like him, hate him, whatever, he's got a really sharp, sharp way of writing. And he's a great sense of humor. In fact, a lot of these books are spring, you know, have tons of humor. And it's, always, it's usually surprising. It comes out of nowhere. You're like, whoa. And it's funny. Uh, there's a lot of great interpersonal drama going on here. There's a lot of bombastic action. And uh, as you mentioned earlier in sort of Peter David's style, a lot of unexpected ties to continuity. For example, the, the first set of four books, they uh, by the end of it, they end up coming face-to-face with this giant planet-sized energy-based bird creature. It's a giant bird, like the phoenix, you know? And uh, they call it the great bird of the galaxy. Of course. <laughs> it, well, right. If you if you go back into the mythos, in Star Trek uh, classic seri- um, original series, the episode The Man Trap, they say, you know, may the great bird of the galaxy settle on your planet, which was sort of like if you, the great bird of the galaxy settled on your planet, it would become, your planet would be prosperous. Well, also, if you step back, take a step back from that, Gene Roddenberry, a nickname for him was the great bird of the galaxy. Right. So Peter David puts, you know, sort of nods to continuity in here that if you don't know it, you're fine. You can enjoy the story without it or you get that much more out of it. And we've said this a little bit before, but like since these characters were not tied up in any other franchise, the characters can grow. You know, they can change. They fall in love. They get married. They have children. They betray the Federation. They have their consciousness absorbed by a computer. They meet mirror universe versions of themselves. They become gods. They sadly, some even die. And all of those things happen. I'm not telling you to who, but all of those things do happen. And and also, uh, if you ever read Peter David's Hulk run, Peter David has one unique uh, thing he does where 
Once you get used to the dynamics of a storyline or a rhythm or the characters or the format, he flips the script completely. He changes it. And he does that in this book. You, you, you go along the first, I don't know, seven, eight books. You get to book nine. Suddenly, everything changes. And then you get, you get used to the new dynamic. They set up a new normal. And then you go a few more books later. He flips the script again. It's a whole new setup. And he keeps doing this. And he keeps reinventing it, which keeps it fresh. But it also keeps you on your toes. And uh, sometimes it's change can be hard. But it's really interesting. His books are always fun to read. I mean, they rollick along at a great pace. He's got a real flair for the written language. You just you can't help but be engaged. Uh, so they're really, really great. One of the things I'm really proud of is my wife, shortly after we got married, she actually snuck into my office. At, I mean, she didn't sneak in. I just went in my office. <laughs> but she snuck one of the books out of my New Frontier collection. And apparently I didn't even notice for several weeks. And she mailed it to Peter David and asked him to autograph it for me. And uh, he autographed it and mailed it back to her. And she gave it to me as a present, which was really freaking cool. Wow. The thing with doing it in novels is that you are not beholden to any actors. So yep. uh, if you, you, you know, you can, you can kill them off or you can change their circumstances drastically or uh, so the books actually give you that, that freedom. And if they're not meant to ever appear on TV or in film again, then, you know, that may well happen. They're not being kept. An editor isn't keeping them safe. Uh, he has all of that to play with. But like we said, he's a comic book writer, so serializing things and then flipping the format because you need to refresh it, that's a very much a comic book thing. Bringing all of that to the uh, Star Trek franchise, where he had pretty much, you know, a lot of freedom, just made it such an interesting series where anything could happen, and did. In a lot of ways, it is more like a comic book than a traditional Star Trek book. And you sort of brought this to my attention as we're getting ready to talk about this. And I was rereading the books at the time anyway. And if you read each one individually, you know, it's a, like I said, they're a great read. They're lots of fun. But when you binge read a bunch of them together, you start to see certain things. And that's where I noticed how New Frontier is more like a comic book than like a Star Trek book. And I realized that when I read a specific book, it was the, the Captain's Table. They did a whole storyline of Captain's Table books where each captain would go into a bar and they get to tell a story. Well, in this one, Mackenzie told a story about his time before the Excalibur. And he's on another ship and we get to see him with basically a regular Starfleet crew. And that one reads a lot more like a traditional Star Trek novel. And I noticed it when I'm reading I'm like, I'm really digging this. And I'm like, wait, this is different. Yeah, very much like a traditional uh, novel. So when I went back to some of the New Frontier stuff, I realized like what the difference is. The characters we, we've been hinting along along, they basically have superpowers. And they really do. There's a bunch of people that have mind powers. You've got Salar, Saleta, Kalinda. You've got people that have got like predatory animal powers, which are like Begoin uh, and Janos. You, you've got a, a character that's a giant walking tank, basically the thing, or, or block as we said, Kebron. You've got characters with godlike powers. You've got computers with personality. You've got basically, you've got, you got two characters that are kind of like Batman, really. They're the Batman, the, the super tactician, and then the total, like, absolute awesome fighter. Saquon and Captain Calhoun, both of them have battles where they take out dozens and dozens and dozens of enemies with their bare hands. You know, it's, it's ridiculous, unrealistic. You'd never see it in a Star Trek TV show, but it works here in that sort of sense. But no, no budget, right? There, there's no budget restrictions. Exactly, exactly. And, and like a lot of comic books, you know, they flip-flop back and forth between being character-driven and being plot-driven. And, uh, and there are an incredible series of coincidences that happen in these books that end up helping out the characters. Like, if you step back from it, you're like, eh, I don't know. But, you know, Big, bold, brash stories, you know, lots of fun, and um, it, it just sort of works. You know, I, I right now, I tell you, I'm, I'm rereading these, 
and I have to be honest, I haven't been rereading the physical copies because, this is kind of cool, one of the early hardcovers actually had a CD-ROM in the back and it featured every single one of the previous uh, New Frontier books in a CD-ROM PDF format, which at the time was like, you'd have to read them on like a laptop or something, which, God, who would want to read a book on a laptop? Um, and so I just kind of tossed the CD to the side and didn't think about it. Well, now in this era of tablets, I've been just using Dropbox to throw it on the tablet and I've been reading them through, you know, one of the Kindle readers or whatever, and I'm just having a blast. I love it. I'm reading an ebook. It's great. It's very convenient. Uh, I'll have to get uh, some of that uh, ebook mojo because the first four books, the, the four books that really were republished as one, you know, there's a collected version. Uh, those four books I lent out to a friend Oops. who not only lost them and could not give them back, but never even read them. So, um, oh. and I should have known. He was a guy in my role-playing group. He's the one who always, uh. you know, flushed at the last minute. He's the one who always betrayed the team. <laughs> well, there's such a fast read. I mean, that's one of the things that I love about these books. There's, it's not that they're fluff, but they're just, they're super, Peter David just writes that way. They're super fast reads. You, you blow through them super fast. Yeah, so. they're a lot of fun. Now, by the way, one of the things I, I meant to mention earlier, and I should, is like the heyday of New Frontier was, it was, it was about a 10-year period. Uh, it was 1997 to 2006. That's really when the bulk of all this came out. Then you'd get a few books in drips and drabs. And as you mentioned, 2015, uh, it wasn't just one ebook. It was actually three ebooks that came out in 2015. And uh, that was the last time. That was sort of a, the publishers kind of said, all right, we're going to give this one more try. And they did it as ebooks. And they said, if it's popular enough, we'll do more. Well, here we are two years later. We haven't had any more. So. And, oh, there was also six comic books. There was one sort of like standalone issue uh, put out, I think, by was it Image, maybe? Um, uh, Wildstorm, yeah. Wildstorm, yeah. Mm. And then there was a five-issue miniseries put out by IDW. I've read those, but um, as I read every <laughs> Star Trek comic at one point. But, I, you know, the art was mm, sort of iffy for me. I, you know. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough going. There's also a bunch of anthology stories we should have mentioned, too. Like, they did... Uh, they really got into these anthology books where it'd be like the tales from the dominion war or tales from the mirror universe. And they would be, you know, 10 stories in there. One of them would be by Peter David that took place in the new frontier universe. So you'd have to buy the whole book to get it. But a lot of, you know, they made a big deal of introducing the mirror universe, Mackenzie Calhoun and his adventures sort of bled through, which was interesting. Would it make a good TV series though? Now that's, <sighs> that, that's the question that, that, you know, we said it'd be a great comic book series. Yeah. But well, what do you think? You, you answer this one first. Uh, no, obviously you couldn't pick this up today. Right. I, you'd have to recast uh, Shelby Leffler and, um, and Solar because obviously back in the nineties, they were, they would have been at the right age or not so far off from their uh, first appearances. But today, I mean, it, it doesn't work. It's not the same dynamics if all those actors are so much older. So no, you can't do that today. But would it have made a good series at the time? You know, instead of Voyager, well, I'll say any series would have been better than Voyager. <laughs> That's one thing. I don't know. Is it enough of a hook? That's the question. Besides all the characters that are very hard to portray, it would have been very hard to do uh, Zach Kebron, oh, uh, yeah. of course, or even Burgoyne, especially the sexual politics of the thing mm -hmm. uh, on TV. Star Trek has always been a bit shy until, you know, until maybe now. Star Trek's been way too shy on LGBT matters. Besides that, I'm wondering if the whole Sector 221G angle is enough of a hook or would have been enough of a hook for a TV series. You know, it seems like low rent where the spin-off shows have been Deep Space Nine on the edge of a wormhole going to the Gamma Quadrant 
where we've never been. And then there's Voyager lost in the Delta Quadrant where the Borg live, but we've never been. It seems so big. And here we have, you know, basically the Enterprise C. So it's like a, you know, a cheaper ship going to, <laughs> oh, just a sector that we haven't been able to get into. So it seems just as far as, as the premise goes, I don't think would have been greenlit by Paramount, you know? That's not to say that the series wouldn't have been good, because if it had that level of writing and of humor uh, and of, of things happening and surprise and more of a serialization than we were used to in Star Trek back in the day, I think that would have been, those would have been great elements to actually see on the show. That's the beginning of my answer. Well, it, it's a very good answer. It, it hits on a lot of stuff I'm thinking too. You know, it really would be have to fall on more like the modern style of telling a story, the more modern, episodic, serialized story telling you get on cable shows. That's where they would have to lay on. And I don't know. I would love if the character stuff would come through because again, Peter David develops these wonderful characters, but a lot of it's in their heads. A lot of it is Peter David's ability to turn a phrase or give you an incredibly shocking moment that ends a chapter where you're like, "Well, what? That just happened." I, you know, and I don't know if that works on TV as well. The humor would be there, certainly, but the, the action would work. And, and superheroes are popular, you know? I mean, and all these characters have superpowers. Now, part of the thing that would work against it, this is still that sort of antiseptic, you know, next generation version of Star Trek, where the interiors of the ship look like the lobby of a Marriott, rather than, you know, the lived-in, dirty tech that you see in every show nowadays. So I'm, I'm trying to imagine this show on sort of those next-gen sets that look to, you know, there's a fern in the corner, it looks like a Bennigan's or something, you know, it's, I don't know that it would fly with this audience in, in, at the same time. It, it, I'm afraid, honestly, it would come off a lot like Voyager. Even though you said Sector 221G is smaller, hey, you know what, seven season, they could explore the whole thing, whatever, but it's not that different from Voyager, really. It's a new crew, a bunch of misfits, they gotta figure out how to work together, they're in a new unexplored area. Eh, yeah, it could have ended up like Voyager, unfortunately. So I think it works better as a book series. Uh, for sure. I mean, it's uh, uh, you know that's that's the medium it was written for, uh, so of course, and it, it, you know it takes no prisoners as far as things you can't do outside of a book. It, you know, it's right. It's a book. You could adapt it. It's kind of the the stuff you, you sort of think about because you are casting them in your heads. You do have the actually they, they were pretty cool about showing what the characters look like on the book covers. So yes, the the fifth and sixth book thankfully had pictures of the whole crew or the, at least the bridge crew right there. I mean that's the cover of four and five you, or five and six. You put them together and you can see the whole bridge and every crew member and that became our guide so we knew what the characters looked like. Yeah, every time you read a Star Trek novel, you're based basically playing it as a TV show in your head, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, especially when you know all the actors, it's like, that. that's one of the things that makes these these, these kinds of tie-in books a quicker read, because you're not, you're not processing, you're not, you know, really recasting every character. It, it just seems so clear right away, because you've seen them on TV. So, a part of me would love to see a, you know, an episode of uh, New Frontier, and an episode of every spin-off series, you know, just to see what it would look like, who they would cast and what the dynamics would actually be. There's a part of me that says that. But of course, books are books and things written for books sometimes are better to stay in books. I'm not necessarily a fan of adaptations. Doesn't always work. Now, I'll say one, it got me thinking about just the, the thinking about the show versus, uh, you know, a book and TV and all that. Like for me, my favorite era of this series in the, was when they were still on the Ambassador Class version. Because... I don't really like the Galaxy Class ships that much. Mm, I, I agree. I don't like the way it looks. As much as I love Next Generation, like the Ambassador Class ship is totally badass. Now, my favorite version of any ship is Enterprise A. That's my favorite look. 
But still, uh, I love the sea. Or ambassador, whatever you want to call it. Make people mad at the end by bad-mouthing a galaxy class. <laughs> Terribly sorry, folks. <laughs> Write your congressman. Complain. Uh, well, even you know, even the TNG crew had to switch ships sometime. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, somebody crashed uh, the boat. I don't want to say who, but... Um... <laughs> Some some people don't have any helmsman training, it seems. Ouch. <laughs> uh, any final thoughts on uh, on New Frontier? Because we want people to, to seek these out and, and read them and enjoy them. Yeah, we, we really barely touch the surface of what happens in these books, because just to avoid spoilers, those of you who have read later, you're yelling at your, your, your iPods going like, no, so much more happens to that character. Yeah, I know what happens to the characters. I've been there. Trust me. I love it too. But I want these folks to try it. I want them to read the first four books and go, yeah, and go through it. And then when they get to book 12 go oh my god that happened you know it's it's that great it's that wonderful and it keeps you on your toes and it's just a great ride and when we say the first four books really these days you could buy it as one there's a yeah i think the collected version is probably uh more available either way either way uh it's a it's a good read and a good model for a lot of star trek book series that came out later which you know, it might show up on uh, Give Me That Star Trek someday as well. Although I don't think I've read that many. Hmm. How many Star Trek books have you read? Oh, no, I've read a lot of Star Trek books. Probably more than you have. If, if 50 okay. is your, your your total, it's probably higher than that. I don't know. Like, to me, that feels like a lot. But then I look at how many, like, Doctor Who books I've read. I've read, like, in excess of 300 Doctor Who books. So I'm like, oh, well, yeah, I guess that's not many. <laughs> yeah, you've read a lot more Doctor Who books than I have. Availability to me was was very uh, sporadic but Star Trek books I lived down the street from a used bookstore and they had tons of it so I was always in there and getting them at discount prices and eventually reading them and making cards for them for the CCG and whatever else we met with the Doctor Who CCG card game you made I met you online through that see and that's a byproduct of uh, having uh, worked with a decipher on the Star Trek CCG, well, working with, I mean, writing articles for their uh, site and whatnot. Uh, so it's, it's all connected. It's all connected, Chad. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me on the show. This has been great. I'm so glad to finally put the shag stamp on this uh, show. So, <laughs> Well, before you step on that uh, transporter platform, please tell people where they can find you on this here network. Because sure. we're also connected through the Fire That's and Water right. Podcast Network. The Fire and Water Podcast Network. I am, uh, I guess, technically the first fire of the Fire and Water Podcast Network mm-hmm. when Rob and I started our show about Firestorm and Aquaman, which is out there uh, on the network. Also, I'm on the Who's Who podcast. I am I do the JLI Boahaha podcast, and uh, we have a number of other shows I appear on, like the Digest cast, things like that. And I make guest appearances all over the place. So pretty much just look on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'll show up there somewhere eventually. And you can hear me at the beginning of the, the show every single episode. <laughs> that's true. That's, that's true. That's at least once a month then. Uh, <laughs> uh, so thank you, Shag, for doing this with me is we've been planning this for since the beginning uh, as an episode (laughs) before the first episode came out in my defense the opening where i do that thing i recorded like i don't know seven or eight different versions of that and i sat there and memorized the kirk's annotations and the way he said it in the original series and i I feel like cisco picked like the most flat one which probably does sound the most like kirk's though uh so i i you know if for those of you who think that they could do a better job i apologize it, it really was i was trying to be as faithful as possible i don't remember now but i you know i had like three to choose from you you selected the best three i suppose yes uh yes. and uh so i i don't know i i tried all three 
and that's <laughs> that's the one that best worked with the music. Yeah. So you know, it's it's a, it's a technical matter. There we go. I'm I'm sorry you're disappointed with the choice. <laughs> I'm disappointed with myself, but again, it's uh, sadly pretty faithful. <laughs> well, I've got some uh, subspace transmissions to do, some Star Trek news, uh, and your uh, listener feedback. So uh, Shag, I'm gonna just gonna use these sliders here to send you back to your planet. Beam me back to sector 221G, please. That's that's Florida, is it? (laughs) Thanks again, and we'll see you after the break. Oh, adolescents this generation have no respect and are a far cry from my sweet Jane Eyre and her friend Helen Burns. Why, just this afternoon I was walking... And and you know what, men too. Well, uh, uh, Stella. Serious men like the tragic Mr. Rochester and teachers. Pa, they're all like the villainous Mr. Brocklehurst. Hey, Stella! Uh, yes, Thomas. As much as I enjoy um indulging your insanity, we have a promo to record. Oh dear, and what might that be? That is you and I telling everyone that we have a brand new podcast out there. It's called Required Reading with Tom and Stella. Once a month, we will take a look at a single work of literature, discuss it, analyze it, and determine if it's worth its place in the canon. Oh dear, that sounds delightful. Oh, I'm sure it will be. And you can find us on the Two True Freaks Network, which is at twotruefreaks.com. Oh, yes. Required reading with with Tom and... Why is it Tom and Stella? Why can't it be Stella and Tom? It rolls off the tongue better? Okay. Well, that was easy. So, required reading with Tom and Stella at twotruefreaks.com. Thanks for contributing to the promo there. You did a great job. Oh, you are so welcome. Incoming subspace transmissions in Star Trek news. Obviously, the big thing since we last spoke is that both Star Trek Discovery and The Orville have premiered. Only a few episodes in, I'm not yet willing to give an opinion on either, but thanks to everyone who asked, and you've been many. The truth is, I watched the first couple episodes of Discovery on Space, the Canadian sci-fi channel here, and there were just so many fluff pieces and interviews before it suddenly aired without so much as a buy-your-leave at, like, 948, and so many obnoxious commercials throughout, I just couldn't get past my frustration. Hopefully, I'll rewatch it with a more relaxed frame of mind soon. And that's really the first item of news I want to get to, where to watch Discovery. Originally, this podcast announced that the show would be available on Netflix in Canada, but that turned out not to be true. In fact, while all Netflix subscribers outside the US will get Discovery through that streaming service, a separate deal was struck with Space here in Canada, so the so-called Imagination Station has the exclusive. Sorry about that. CBS got good numbers with its new Star Trek series, with some 9.6 million viewers watching the pilot in the U.S. alone, plus 2.2 in Canada on either Space or CTV. That's not as much as even Enterprise's premiere uh, at 12.5, but television's landscape has changed a lot since then. Many people just don't watch shows as they go out anymore, especially genre fans. The premiere did give CBS All Access its biggest one-day sign-up. Not that I can give you any real numbers on that. 
In line with the premiere, the USS Discovery flew over New York City on the night of September 23rd in a neat bit of promotion. If you wonder how they did that, it was a two-ton exoskeleton with LED lights attached to a Black Hawk helicopter. Did you see it? Let us know. And let me end on a bit of casting news from Discovery. Amanda Grayson, wife of Sarek and mom to Spock, previously played by uh, Jane Wyatt in the original series and films and by Winona Ryder in J.J. Abrams' Trek film, has been cast. She will be played by Mia Kirshner, formerly of 24, The L Word, Vampire Diaries, and Defiance. Look for her to appear later in this series. Now your feedback on episode 13, an ode to Sulu. We thought it'd be nice to just look at just one character and pay real tribute to that character. One of my favorites. Uh, here, Rob Kelly says, great episodes, guys. I thoroughly enjoyed this deep dive on one of the Trek characters. As usual, Siskoid finds an angle I never considered. Namely, that Takei as Sulu got to escape the stereotyping of Scotty and Chekhov. No funny voice, no leaning so heavily on cliches that Americans have about people from other countries. I was really torn during Star Trek VI. While I appreciated the very similitude of having one of the Enterprise bridge crew actually get promoted and move on, which only makes sense, I also missed seeing Sulu on the bridge of the Enterprise during that final shot. In the end, I guess it was worth it, because he does get to save the day at the end of the movie. I saw Trek VI in the theaters on opening night and people went nuts when the Excelsior came flying in. Then we have Chris Franklin who says, man, I love this. I really like Sulu. Not as much as my wife who famously had and still has a crush on George Takei. And not as much as I like Scotty, but I do like the character. Takei missed a lot of season two making John Wayne's troubled Green Berets film. That's one reason why Chekhov got pushed so much more in that season, and also because of the publicity around having a Russian heroic lead in the Cold War. But you're right, it was nice to see Sulu as just an Earthling, not a Japanese stereotype. Takei's rich baritone voice was the antithesis of the way Asians and Asian Americans were seen as on TV at the time. Star Trek VI is just awesome, and it and Khan fight back and forth for my favorite Trek film. I also loved the Voyager sequel, but you reminded me of how much I hated Janeway's commentary on our heroes. Bergman and his crew could be really dismissive of what they viewed as their crazy grandpa sometimes, and that's just BS. I was one of those guys chomping at the bit for that Sulu series, and I'm still honked off we never got it. Have I mentioned how much I love Star Trek Beyond? I like Cho's Sulu. I wish they checked with Takei on Sulu's orientation change because it kind of sucks that it was a tribute he really didn't care for. I liked your take on them being the distilled memory of what those characters were, that's perfectly stated. To which, my guest at the, uh, for, for that episode, David A. Gutierrez, responded to Chris by saying, you just like Star Trek Beyond because they're on the Franklin. Ido Bosnar uh, says, I'll just say this. Every time I rewatch Star Trek VI, I'm convinced that instead of a crossover with TNG, the seventh Trek movie should have been centered around Captain Sulu. The original cast members could have appeared in various capacities, Dr. McCoy, Chekhov, and Uhura, for example, perhaps on board the Excelsior for a visit, or some serious shit goes down, so they get caught up in the adventure, and Kirk and Spock having smaller but still prominent roles somewhere in the story. I know Shatner's ego would have made something like that impossible, but man, what a missed opportunity. This is followed by Ryan Daly, who says that as a neophyte, uh, he's still making his way through the original series on Netflix. 
In fact, I think he's, he's done because as of a couple of days ago, I saw that he was watching the Star Trek films. He says, I barely remember Star Trek The Undiscovered Country, even though it was the first Trek film I've ever watched, and solely because I heard Christian Slater was in it. Based on my limited experience with the original cast, Sulu is my fifth favorite after Kirk, Bones, Spock, and Scotty. Brian Linton says, Sulu is my favorite member of the original Enterprise crew and has been since I first watched TOS as a kid. While listening to this episode, I was trying to figure out what it was that initially drew me to him, but I'm not entirely sure. In general, my favorite characters tend to be secondary ones. For example, Wedge Antilles is probably my favorite character from the franchise that lives on the other side of the tracks. In the end, it may just have come down to the fact that he was the guy who actually got to pilot the Enterprise. Sulu, he means, not Wedge Antilles. Then he says... Perhaps that's an underlying theme there, given that Wedge was also a pilot. Deep down, do I secretly long to pilot a spaceship? Darn it, now I have to reevaluate my entire life and the career choices I've made. I wasn't planning on having my midlife crisis for another couple of years. Hey, piloting is a tough racket to get into sometimes, depending on what you want to fly. Greg A. says, every time I hear Sulu's first name, I'm always reminded it was first revealed in Vonda McIntyre's The Entropy Effect back in 1981. That's a novel. Sulu definitely fared better in McIntyre's Star Trek film novelizations. The Voyage Home novel included scenes where he meets his great-great-great-grandfather, which might have been a touching scene. Unfortunately, problems with the child actor prevented it from being filmed. Then Lewis asks... Uh, who asked for the Sulu spotlight? Not me, but I was on board from start to finish, nodding my head so much I might as well have been headbanging. I was especially reminded of Sulu being a man of diverse interests. Even though the unfolding sword was his big hero moment in Trek 09, its decidedly Asian appearance shows how progressively unorthodox TOS Sulu was over four decades earlier. Good point. Then my leader over at the Legion of Superbloggers, little Russell Burbage of Earth, says, I was pleasantly surprised to hear that your opinions on TOS basically matched mine. I love the show because of the supporting cast, not because of the main three. And of the main three, McCoy is my favorite. I don't know why that is, but I think it's partly because the others somehow manage to be charming and interesting and competent, even though they only have a few moments in every episode. So in spite of Kirk slash Shatner, not because of him. My favorite TUS episodes all feature the full cast, or most of them. Mirror Mirror, of course, the Doomsday Incident, a mock time, the ones where we really get to see the family aspect of the series that is only hinted at in so many films. By the way, I apologize, but I feel I have to correct you. George's last name is pronounced with a K sound, not like Kubla Kai. Uh, that is something we did. I, I, you know, I flipped and flopped between Takei and Takai and somehow fell on the wrong side of it. Uh, but as you can see, I've, I've corrected it in, in this comment section. The second syllable of Takei rhymes with the letter K. In Japanese, Takei is a rather common last name, which means well of the warrior. Did you know that the original TOS airing in Japan, Sulu's name was changed to Kato? Because Sulu is not a Japanese word, and he was originally not a Japanese character, just a nondescript Asian. He became Japanese because of George Takei's influence. Anyway, I always thought it was weird that Sulu and the Green Hornet's sidekick shared the same name. It was only in later airings and in the movies that he became Sulu. Jim Harold says, I wonder if you would consider doing an episode on who could possibly replace Chekhov in the next movie. Since he won't be recast out of respect for Anton Yelchin, who would you bring up from the minors? My top choices are Rand, Leslie, played by Eddie Paskey in, in fourth highest appearances, uh, the new Jayla character or Aisha Hines character. I think Jayla has a... Jayla from Star Trek Beyond has a good shot 
I think she was an engaging character and um, would bring a new kind of alien to the main cast since she was already introduced. That's if we get another Star Trek movie, of course. Tim Price says, while Sulu was not my favorite Trek character, I certainly agree with your points in this podcast. And he stole the show in six every time. Love that movie. But you know, it's the filmmaker's own fault that we expected, not wanted, expected, an Excelsior series or movie. When they show Sulu on the Enterprise comm screen with his entire bridge crew posing for their promo shot, what were we supposed to think? Making them heroes, charging to the rescue of the Enterprise, and give us that image? They set it all up and didn't deliver. That does look conspicuous. Maybe they were floating it. Maybe, you know, maybe there was some thought about it and then uh, it just didn't happen. Let me end here on some Facebook likes and shares from Abadaba, Brian Ng, Chris Franklin, Chris Tyler, Christopher Luke, Clinton Robinson of Coffee and Comics, Corey Hodgden, David S. Gutierrez, D. Bash, Greg Arruyo, Jason Mulliken, Jason Pope, Jennifer Lee Breyer, Max Romero, Max Traver, Nicholas Brom, Rob Kelly, Robert Gross, Shag Matthews, and Zumi Kanori. On Google+, Plus, uh, thank you, The Hammer Strikes. And on Twitter, retweets and favorites from Coffee and Comics, Comic Reflections, Dr. G. Nerdologist, Franklin Boyd, Greg A., Jenny Breyer, John D. Knoll, Let's Talk Masters of the Universe, Max Romero of It's Plastic Man, Mike Zumo of Mosscast, Rob Kelly Creative of Digest Cast, Film and Water Podcast, Host of Sads, Pod Dylan, Superman Movie Minute, and Treasury Comics, Rolled Spine Podcast, Ryan Daly, who here uh, called it a spotlight on one of his top five favorite starter characters, also top five Japanese people, uh, then Sam Lowe, Slang Word Resists, Stacey HD, Tim Price, Trekker Talk, Trekonomics, Trekbot, We Welcome Our Robot Overlords, Treyhook, and Wednesday Comics. So, are you a New Frontier fan? What other Star Trek book series do you like? Or would you have liked to see as a TV series? As usual, let me remind you that you can leave answers or comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com on the Fire and Water Facebook page or on Twitter with the hashtag FWPodcasts. Until the next, this is Siskoid, reminding you to go boldly. 